Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Please, get real. If you're not a nerd, don't call yourself one. I'm Trisha Bobita, and this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week, Emma Christensen, author of the cookbook True Brews, stops by to teach us how to make our own beer, soda, mead. I don't really know what mead is, but she's going to teach us how to make it. You know what else is really cool about Emma Christensen, Trisha? What? Her last name is an S-E-N, which I always admire. Oh, you do love that. Yeah, it's, it's an S-E-N nerd thing. I can't really explain it beyond that. Emma is also the recipe editor at The Kitchen with no E because the internet is averse to E's at the ends of words. (laughs) It's a part of the apartment therapy family of sites, and I have to say it's one that I've been pretty addicted to for a long time. But first, I want to get back to something we talked about a couple weeks ago on the show. We discussed a map we found on Business Insider that's a list of the most famous books set in every state. It was a really interesting list. You know, some I felt better about than others. You had a bone to pick with them about Alaska. And I really tried not to be confrontational with them about it because I get it. We all have our favorites. As I guess we should all know, everyone takes pride in the state they come from. So it turns out the list was fairly contentious. I'd say the states that were most heavily contested were uh, Washington, since we put Twilight as the book of choice there. Uh, yes. <laughs> also, New Jersey was a big one um, since we decided to go with um, Juno Diaz's book Drown instead of For example, a work by Philip Roth, who is also, um, you know, he's from Jersey, and many of his books are set in New Jersey. So a lot of people uh, had some issues with those, too, in particular. I was wondering if people from New Jersey responded by just saying, Bruce, and not really understanding the the context. (laughs) No, luckily nothing like that. (laughs) What are your criteria here? They have to be set in the state, right? And they just have to kind of reflect the overall essence of it? In a way, yes. So the criteria was that the book had to be primarily set in the state. So we didn't use any road trip books. Um, And also the state had to play some sort of significance to to the narrative of the book. So has one or the other of you read all the books on this list? I I definitely haven't read all the books. I think we're probably both around, I don't know, probably around 10 or so. Yeah. It's a fun checklist for people to go through, though, to say they've read all 50 books from 50 states would be sort of a fun uh, cocktail party thing to have done. It is, definitely. And I would love to hear from from someone if someone emailed me saying, I've actually read all of them. I'd be very interested to hear from them. Yeah, that would be really interesting. It's funny because some of these books, you know, like The Jungle being Illinois or The Great Gatsby being New York, you can't extricate the setting from the story. But in some of them, that's not necessarily the case. Like, I granted, I'll admit, I haven't read Twilight. But 
I also wouldn't expect Washington to necessarily play a significant role in the telling of that story. Greta, but it's done so much for tourism in that state. They make millions of dollars off of being the setting for this, right? You guys are the business insiders. You yeah. know? <laughs> it, it actually has, and especially the, the town that the book is set in, I believe, is a real town. Yep. Um, and the book being set there has, has drawn a lot of visitors to it, I think. Similar to the Breaking Bad phenomenon of tourism in the Southwest, we then have the same thing happening in Washington. Right. So what's your guys' favorite book on these lists? I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, probably, you know, kind of quintessentially, kind of like that sort of era uh, Vegas. And also, you know, Hunter S. Thompson just kind of being this Western, like, individual character uh, kind of spoke to the state also. Uh, I'd say mine would be Red Sky at Morning, which was a book that I read in high school. Um, And, of course, at the time, since it was assigned, I kind of trudged through it. But getting into it um, and looking back now, I really enjoyed it. And doing the research for this piece, realizing how significant New Mexico played in the the plot of the book, it, it meant more to me now, I think, having done this piece. Thanks to Melissa Stanger and Mike Noodleman. Melissa is the associate editor of Lists, and Mike is the graphic designer for Business Insider. Many thanks to them for telling us a little bit about this list. We will definitely keep an eye out on their lists in the future. So, Tricia, the way you kind of got defensive about Washington over there made me think that maybe you've read Twilight. Is that true? I haven't actually read the books. I have seen all the movies. That's interesting. I only saw the second. Was that the one where they went to Rome or whatever? I think you might be thinking of The Da Vinci Code. (laughs) No, man, it was definitely a Twilight movie. I saw it with my 18-year-old Polish friend. It's a long story. Oh, do you mean when they go on their honeymoon to the weird place? No, they hadn't gotten married yet. Oh, maybe I didn't see them all. (laughs) (laughs) I bet between the two of us we have seen them all. Oh, man. Let's never speak of it again. So Greta couldn't make it to our interview with Emma Christensen this week, but Megan Murphy-Gill came along since she is a book nerd, but also a food nerd. And I think we're turning her into a bit of a brew nerd. So what made you realize that you're kind of a nerd for homebrewing and cooking? I have to admit it kind of snuck up on me. Not like I woke up one day and was like, you know what? I'm going to become a fermentation geek. (laughs) Actually, it started because I came across a recipe for ginger ale that was just made with baker's yeast, like the same yeast that we used to make bread. My mind was blown because I had never before heard of making your own soda pop and carbonating it with anything other than adding sparkling water to like a syrup base. And so I tried it and it was just amazing. It was one of the most amazing ginger ales I'd ever had. And that was kind of the spark that started everything. So I started making my own ginger ale. I had some friends who were brewing beer. When my husband and I got married, they gave us a gift certificate to our local homebrewing store. And uh, so we started homebrewing. And I immediately like just totally started geeking out on homebrewing. Brewing beer is just, it's like a rabbit hole. (laughs) You, (laughs) You start and it seems really simple. And it is actually on the surface, very, very simple. But then you get into it and there's all these little things you can change or try this or buy this new equipment and it can really take over Um, and then from there it was just kind of I just kept adding on more other kinds of fermented beverages that just sounded amazing to me Um, sake and mead and and oh and then I discovered kombucha when I moved out to the west coast and now I brew that constantly and drink it almost every day so at some point I realized I had amassed this like 
fermentation lab <laughs> and all this knowledge about fermentation. And it was around then that I was like, you know, I should maybe put this in a book. I feel like I've never met kind of just a casual home brewer. You're either really <laughs> in it or you're like not into it. Of true. Although I am definitely a brewing geek, I will totally accept that title. But I try not to be so geeky about it that it turns people off because I, I think that can happen sometimes. Like if you start talking about kombucha or beer and you're just so intense about it, I feel like new people are like, whoa, that sounds really complicated or that sounds hard or I don't want to invest nearly as much time and energy as you seem to be investing in this. So I try to keep it on the calm side <laughs> when I'm talking to the people who I think might be interested in starting it for the first time. My husband actually hosts a beer podcast, and he's really into beer, but he has not taken the step to get into home brewing, even though he's really interested in it. Actually, reading your book is when he decided that he's going to take that step because he felt like the book made it like really straightforward and really accessible. That's great. So happy to hear that. So I know your first batch of homebrew was ginger ale, but what about your first kind of alcoholic brew? That was definitely beer. And we started off with an all extract five gallon batch, which is pretty typical. You know, you walk into a homebrewing store and tell them you want to start homebrewing and they're like, okay, here's your extract kit and here's the pot you need to brew it and go for it. And I'm not going to lie, it was pretty awful. <laughs> um, I think if I remember right, it was a porter. There are basically kind of three tiers of home brewing. There's all extract. Extract is basically concentrated beer juice. And all you need to make a batch of beer is mix it with some water and throw in some yeast, and then you can start making beer. And then the second tier is extract with some specialty grains. And so then you keep those specialty grains in hot water, get a little more flavor, a little more interesting character to your beer, and then you mix it with that all extract and then the next last step is going all grain, where you get rid of that extract and you basically make it all yourself. You use all grain, steep it for a set period of time at a set temperature, and you get what's called wort, um, and then you make your beer from there. So anyways, that little background on, on beer brewing there. So our first batch was all extract, and it just it was, like I said, not super great. Um, it didn't help the fact that we kind of didn't know what we were doing, and we... Like, didn't know how to start a siphon when we were trying to transfer the beer from, like, one container to the next. And so we did it the old school way where you kind of suck on this hose to pull the beer through the hose and get it started. <laughs> and actually ended up fitting the beer back into the bucket because, I don't know, that just seemed instinctual at the time. So I don't think that helped. <laughs> But I have to say, even though it wasn't a roaring success, there was something about that that just really pulled me in and fascinated me. Like the process of transforming these raw ingredients into beer is just, it's like, I don't know, alchemy or magic. Pretty quickly, we were bringing all grain batches. Although I also have to say, so it's just my husband and I living together, and five gallons is a lot of beer for two people to drink. Um <laughs> So even if it's a good batch, like we made this IPA that I just remember being amazing, mm -hmm. but halfway through like 54 bottles of beer, you're kind of like, okay, <laughs> tired of drinking this IPA. Right. Um, and the IPA, and you kind of have to drink quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to last forever and neither of us are big beer drinkers. So, you know, drinking one IPA a day, it just takes a long time to work through a batch. It was around there that I started brewing one-gallon batches, which is still what I brew now. And 
I find them really satisfying and a lot of fun. You can brew a lot of different kinds. You can brew a lot more frequently. So you have like a choice of five beers in the fridge to go to. You mentioned that it's sort of like alchemy, and it reminds me of that old saying, cooking's an art, baking's a science. So is brewing squarely in the science category, or is there some artistry in it for you too? Is that also what makes it fun? It has to be somewhere in the middle. It definitely appeals to the side of my personality that really wanted to be a physics major. I was not a physics major. It did not pan out. But there's that part of me that like loves the science aspect and kind of knowing how things work and tinkering with the temperature controls and adding this ingredient at this particular time and so on. But yeah, there's definitely an artistry. Like there's the straightforward brewing beer process, but then there's also just like so many little things that you can decide yourself, starting with what ingredients do you use? Do you use a darker malt or a lighter malt? Do you use a hop that adds citrusy flavors or do you use a hop that adds kind of woodsy herby flavors and all these decisions can change the kind of beer that you end up with and could just be great fun to play around with getting into things like adding bourbon soaked wood chips or even adding fruit to the beer oh they, they just like yeah so there <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is there's definitely a creative side of how this works and you can put your own stamp on just about any beer that you brew and that goes for all fermented beverages, too, like making kombucha or soda pop, definitely wine, the whole gamut. Do you care to explain kind of what happens when you ferment a beverage? So all fermented beverages are basically the same process of taking some sort of sugary liquid and adding yeast and then letting it sit for a period of time. And if you're making something like soda pop, that's a really quick thing. You're really only going for carbonation. That happens in a couple of days. But if you're making something like beer or wine, you start off with that wort, which is the liquid that you extract from the grains. Or with wine, you take fruit juice and you let it sit for anywhere from two weeks to, in the case of wine, years. And what happens during that time is there's an initial several days of just really crazy active fermentation where the yeast is starting to consume the sugars that are in that liquid. And as a byproduct, they're releasing carbon dioxide and alcohol. Carbon dioxide kind of escapes from your brewing vessel via an airlock, but the alcohol stays behind. As all the sugars are consumed, the yeast start to go into kind of a dormant stage and they'll fall to the bottom of the brewing vessel. And then you basically take your brew off of that yeast that's at the bottom of the vessel. And um, you can age it or you can bottle it. Sometimes it's ready to drink right there. But that's it, basically. I mean, it's a pretty simple process of yeast eating sugar and giving you alcohol in return. So Megan is kind enough to have offered to make a Nerdette soda. And so we're going mm-hmm. to try her spin on one of the recipes to make a soda. And we noticed that it says after about a couple weeks, you shouldn't keep drinking the soda And I want to know, is that because it gets boozy? And does it get boozy in a good way or a bad way? (laughs) Um, It doesn't get super boozy uh, because you put it into the fridge at that point and yeast goes pretty much completely dormant once it's below about 35 degrees. So you're not getting a lot of further fermentation action in that soda. Some people say that they start picking up more of a boozy flavor, but I think that that's more that they're picking up a yeast flavor, which gets associated with a booze kind of connotation. When I say that it's not so good after two weeks, it just loses a certain kind of freshness after a couple of weeks, and the flavors just don't quite seem as crisp and exuberant and amazing after that point. Now, if you did want to make an alcoholic beverage, you could put an airlock in that soda and let it ferment for a little while and then eventually you get wine 
Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what soda is. Soda is unfermented carbonated wine. <laughs> Maybe one of the nice things about these smaller batches is, like you said, if it doesn't go quite according to plan, you don't have 54 bottles that you don't like. Exactly. Exactly. I've had batches that I brew and I'm just like, oh, this is not so good. Okay. Well, that was a fun experiment. And now we move on. (laughs) And I don't feel bad about throwing it away. Soda is also a great place to start. Like if you've never brewed before, starting off with a batch of soda, you kind of start to understand the fermentation process a little bit and then when you move on to making beer or mead or wine it makes a little more sense when you were writing your book did you have to tread carefully because you're writing a book that teaches people how to make alcohol which is a totally regulated thing in this country homebrewing is now legal in all 50 states that actually just changed in the past year you can legally brew up to 100 gallons of homebrew per adult Per household. So if you have two adults in your household, you can brew 200 gallons of beer or wine, anything like that, which is, that is more than enough for a household of two. The only place where you start to get into trouble and you definitely want to stay away from this is any kind of distilling that is very strictly regulated by the government, both for health reasons and also because of tax reasons. So unfortunately, that is one thing to avoid. So your next um, book will not be about bathtub gins? No, it won't. People ask me about that a lot, and unfortunately it will not be. You might have to move to England and make that book. (laughs) I think you can distill over there. (laughs) Moving on to being like a recipe editor, how did you get into that? I started off as a college textbook editor. That's what I did shortly after college and worked there for a couple years. I kind of looked in the future, and I it just wasn't super exciting to me. And around that same time, I had been getting more and more into cooking at home. In fact, I think the kitchen had just started, and I was an early kitchen reader. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to do this, I might as well just go all the way. So I ended up quitting my job and going back to culinary school. In the year that I was at culinary school, the kitchen was hiring, and so I started freelancing for them. And then I also had the opportunity to intern at America's Test Kitchen, which was amazing and was definitely fundamental to how I learned how to develop recipes and really look at cooking in a critical way. It all just kind of evolved from there. Just this past year, it's They decided to expand their editorial staff and asked me to come on as their recipe editor. Getting to nerd out in America's Test Kitchen would be sort of a dream day, let alone a job. Totally my dream day. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they are, they take nerdery to like a whole new level. Like we need a different word to describe the people over at America's Test Kitchen. They're amazing and very intense. And yeah, that was very satisfying to the part of me that just craves the food science explanation for things. Well, I think that even like right now and definitely just since like the advent of blogs, so maybe like in the past 10 years, there's been kind of a cultural fascination with food. There's so many food blogs. Do you think that that has kind of helped your career or do you think that it makes it more difficult to kind of stand out as, you know, not just another food blogger? I had my kind of revelation that I love food along the time when food blogs were becoming a big thing. Like I, when I was first starting to get into food, I remember reading Orangette. I read Canel and Veni, some of the original food blogs. And they're the people who both inspired my cooking and inspired my career, along with the kitchen, of course, was reading the kitchen. And I think the more the merrier. I mean, I love this atmosphere of creativity, of going online and doing a search for who knows what, baked apples, and coming across 50 different takes on what a baked apple can be, seeing what people are doing, seeing their pictures. I think it's amazing. I am inspired every single day. Um, and yeah, I love it. I love food blogs. 
So, Greta, you should get very excited right now. Ah! That sounded more scared than excited, <laughs> but all right. <laughs> Sorry, I, you know, I don't do well on the spot, Trisha. <laughs> well, as you heard in that interview... Megan Murphy Gill is making a Nerdette soda. That is super sweet. I'm really excited to try it out. I don't want to give anything away. I have heard what the flavor is, but we're going to hear more from Megan Murphy Gill in an upcoming episode about how she made the soda and how she decided what to put in the Nerdette soda. Awesome. So Megan Murphy Gill is making us a Nerdette soda, but one of the best things about the recipes in True Brews is the ones that aren't alcoholic to begin with. She does teach you how to make beer and wine. But the soda recipes all seem like the kind of thing that would be amazing to have in your fridge. And then if someone wanted to add, say, gin or something to one of them, I bet it would be amazing. So boozy or not boozy for all tastes. I just really love the word boozy. Me too. Cocktails before homework? No. Beer. Yes. So a few weeks ago, you gave your friends who produced this podcast, uh, Tim Akimov, myself, Allison Cuddy, you gave us a little bit of homework, which was to drink some beers you had brought back from your home state of Michigan. That's right. We are proud of our craft beers in Michigan. Yes. And you have quite a few of them. Unfortunately, we are bad students at Strange Brews and we still haven't drunk your beers. So we have one here. So why don't you open it up? We can drink it right now. Ah, yeah, there it is. Yeah, a little less ceremonious than when Tim opens them up with his ring. Don't bogart the whole thing. So this is a Shorts Brewing. Mm-kay. Mm-kay from Shorts Brew. Ooh, there's quite a nose on that. I would Smell like, those hops. I would like to point out that Andrew's drinking out of a fancy beer nerd drinking glass, and I have a broken mug. <laughs> I have like an official dry hop tasting glass with like etching in the glass at the bottom to make it, you know taste right. And I have a Nerdette mug that the handle broke on, but I can't stop using it. So tell us about Shorts Brewing. I've heard a lot of good things about Shorts. Yeah, so Shorts Brewing is in Bel Air, Michigan, which is just a little north and west of Traverse City, the beautiful tourist area in the northern part of the lower peninsula of Michigan. It's very close to Torch Lake, which I have a lot of fond memories of as a child. I have family that lives in Kalkaska, which is a town inland a bit, and you would go to Torch Lake for the day. And it looks kind of like the Bahamas. White sand, crystal blue water, it's amazing in this the summer. Is, this is like Mario Batali's favorite area, right? He does hang out up there in yeah. his orange crocs. He does. <laughs> more and more people have discovered that Traverse City is a really gorgeous place to spend their summers. And so there's a lot of craft breweries popping up around right. there and really good food. So Shorts Brewing is not just a brewery set in a renovated 120-year-old hardware store in a strip mm. of downtown. So it's very quaint and adorable. Nice. But they also – it's a husband and wife team. Joe Short, who opened it in 2002 – when his wife came into the business, she opened a gourmet deli that's a part of this too. So as much as I like beer and I like a good beer, I have to say that I looked at their menu today and they have a sweet potato bisque with cinnamon bourbon croutons. Hmm. I might rather be drinking that soup right now than this beer, but it is a pretty good beer. What? How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? You're the expert. You tell me. How are we doing on this mk? Well, it's it's a style that I've never heard of before. I, but the bottle says an American... India-style pale lager. So that's a lot of different things combined. It's a hodgepodge of beer. But I think I get all those elements. You know, it's quite hoppy, like an IPA. I'm not sure exactly what an APA versus an IPA is. Usually it's a little less bitter, I think. I know zombie dust is considered an APA. One of the things that we uh, think is important with Strange Brews is that we don't want to be just like the, mm, I'm a poindexter, I have a, <laughs> the most refined palate that you've ever heard, you know, and I'm going to draw out 50 flavors from one beer. 
that you will feel like you're failing if you drink this beer and you don't taste them. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that. I love that kind of stuff. But I think that as more and more people start drinking craft beer, it's important to have a like a common ground area where we can all just talk about the beers we like and talk about the real things that go on with the beers. I don't doubt that some people can taste all these things, but craft beer should be for everybody, not just like the Cicerones, uh, like the major beer nerds, you know. So we are trying to pull back on the nerdiness a little bit. Well, but I think that it's actually the perfect kind of nerdiness for us. Since on our show we don't talk about just one thing, we require any nerd who comes to us to be an ambassador for their nerddom. Mm-hmm. Because if we every week just assumed that everyone had seen every episode of Doctor Who, we might be in trouble. <laughs> but what you're able to do is be a good ambassador for your nerddom. So I think that's the true difference between a nerd and a hipster. And yes, we're using hipster as a strictly pejorative term <laughs> in this instance. You know, liking something enough that you want other people to like it too means being able to make it accessible. And yes. that's what I think you guys are doing at Strange Brews. Yes, that is our goal. We try to do episodes like out in the world, not just, you know, sitting in here. We try to actually, you know, do some research, do some interviews with people about issues that impact the beer industry, things that you might not realize are going on in the beer industry relating to distribution, to different uh, brewery development. I don't just more of a 360 degree view and not just the flavors on your tongue. This beer for me is now going to have a connotation that we drank it here together. That's a good thing. Yep. And I'm a bottle cap saver. Oh, yeah. So there's a thing in my house, you know, those old letterpress trays? Yeah, yeah. So I have a lot of beer caps in there, and each one of those is not necessarily the best beer I ever drank, but mm-hmm. it's the best time I ever had drinking beer. Yes, very important. And so I would say that, you know, anytime you're listening to Strange Brews, you could keep a bottle cap of that beer <laughs> because it's a good conversation. And to me, that's the only reason to open up a beverage is if you're going to sit down for a good conversation. That's true. Yeah. We also, we do like to just get into things like we've had musicians, we've had film directors. We try to find the things that people attach to beer. And beer is a great accompaniment to a great conversation, like you said. And Andrew, when can we hear Strange Brews? Strange Brews has new episodes every other week, and we post them on Fridays. Just in time for the weekend. Exactly. Hopefully before 4 o'clock, and then you get your beer right at the end of the day, and then listen. Oh, man, you could download it as you're leaving the office. Yes. And then listen to it on your commute home. Yes. In anticipation of your own happy hour. Correct. That sounds perfect. It could help you decide what beer to have to kick off the weekend. I got to say, listening to you and Andrew talk beer kind of makes me want a beer. So listening to Strange Brews is part of your homework. What else, Greta? You know, I thought about telling everybody that they should read Wally Lamb's new book, We Are Water, because it's a really good book, but it's also a really big book, like most of them are. So I'm just going to mention it really casually like that and then tell you (laughs) that instead you should take 20 minutes and try watching The Crazy Ones. We talked about it really briefly a couple weeks ago when we were discussing fall television. The main two characters are played by Robin Williams and Sarah Michelle Gellar. I'm pretty sure that's all you need to know about the show. Just just try it out. Robin Williams and Sarah Michelle Gellar are great on the show, but also James Wilk and Hamish Linklater. Hamish Linklater was a character who I could not stand on the newsroom in the most recent season, and he's so lovable in The Crazy Ones that it makes me think, this fellow is a good actor. Oh yeah, that's fair. I've been pleasantly surprised with The Crazy Ones on CBS this fall as well, And it's kind of fun that it seems like it's set in Chicago, although it's, you know, weird TV version of Chicago 
but with lots of pretty time-lapse shots of the city from above. So that's something. Yeah, it's a really pleasant feel-good show. There are a lot of really nice themes in it, and it's also completely ridiculous. And you get lots of little pieces like this where Robin Williams is just being Robin Williams, and it's really wonderful. This is going to get serious. Oh, oh, oh. I been somebody. Yes. I got him on the ropes. Does he not look gas? Come on, bring it, Gumby. Knocked out by a girl. Man, I feel like we're really piling on the homework, but I do have one more little piece for you, and that's from our guest this week, Emma Christensen. Go brew the thing that you love. Like, if you really like soda, start with soda and make some soda pops. If you have recently gotten addicted to kombucha, go figure out how to brew kombucha. Same with beer or wine. Just brew what you love. If you start there, then all the science stuff, all the creativity, all the nitty-gritty details of these things, it's just fun to do because the end result is this thing that you know that you're going to enjoy. All right, that's it. Thanks to Emma Christensen, author of True Brews, and you can find her daily at The Kitchen. Thanks also to Melissa Stanger and Mike Noodleman of Business Insider. And Andrew Gill, one of the co-hosts of Strange Brews. Thanks also to Megan Murphy-Gill. Thanks for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw us a few stars if you're feeling generous. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. You're listening to Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.